the magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies you'll impose on yourself. So don't compare yourself to others. Welcome to Startups and Unicorns with Belinda Agnew. You're home to learn all things funding, scaling, talent, branding, and the billion-dollar dream. Finding out how to be a unicorn in a field of horses. Hear from industry founders and discover how to stand out to those who matter most to your business. With your host, tech startup fanatic, Belinda Agnew. Welcome to another episode of Startup and Unicorns with your host, B. That's me. I'm looking forward to our next guest today. He has successfully incorporated the arts and science of human behavior into various solutions in different industries. He has read more than 3,000 books crazy by the way and has been everywhere around the world. I don't know if he's traveling too much now since COVID but he has traveled everywhere. He's an expert on many topics such as financial empowerment, self-development and social transformation. He also states if you incorporate this knowledge to industry practice you have the roadmap to companies making it big in their respective industries. Please help welcome our special guest today, none other than Dr. Demartini. <laughs> Thank you for being on the show. I'm excited. I was just saying to, to Dr. Demartini earlier that I, I think it was around 17, 18 years old, my second job, I was actually selling his courses over the phone <laughs> for eight months. So that's, uh, it's quite funny how we're speaking today. But thanks for, for being on the show. Yes, thank you for doing that back then. Uh, I was unaware, so thank you. Yeah, crazy, crazy. Um, so I guess I just want to jump straight into it because I like to keep this super conversational as well. Um, I guess tell the audience of, you know, who's Dr. Demartini? Who is John? What, what's your background? Just tell us like a little bio introduction of what you like people to know about you. Okay. First of all, hi. <laughs> I'm I, um, I've been researching, writing, and teaching for over 48 years. Anything to do in the area of human behavior to help people maximize their awareness, their potential, the achievements that they intend, help them be clear about what it is they want and how to get it, how to achieve it. And that could be in any area of life. Um, some people involved in education, academics. Some people may be involved in business. Some people may be on building their wealth or relationship dynamics, which I just got through working with just four minutes ago. Or maybe social causes, which I'm involved in conflict resolutions in Palestine and Israel, for instance. Or it may be involved in healthcare or whatever inspires individuals. So anything to do with maximizing human awareness potential is what I've been focusing on and researching. And it's, back, it's actually 30,000 books. So I've been doing a bit of reading over the years. Okay, wow. And, uh, so I've been and teaching. I've, I've had the opportunity to teach in 154 countries. And I do it pretty well 350 days out of the year. So I'm full-time doing it. I don't... Uh, I don't have anything else I'd rather be doing than researching and teaching. So I just love doing it. And I write a lot of books and do a lot of work and consult and do podcasts and seminars and anything that will help people and maximize their awareness potential. 
Amazing. So what would you say, I guess, to the audience in like three words, what, well, let's just say I was to come up to you or, or a stranger in a room at a dinner party or an event. So what is it that you do? <laughs> what would you say? <laughs> I'm, uh, and I would say that I'm involved in education. I'm an educator, uh-huh. researcher, and in the area of human behavior. Cool. So that's it. I just, in anything that will allow an individual to maximize their awareness and potential to help them achieve what they want to achieve. I've been doing that for a long time, since the 1970s. That's amazing. It's crazy. You literally haven't aged, by the way. I feel as though, I remember 10 years ago, you look exactly the same <laughs> as <you are> today. <laughs> well, I don't know what I'm, it is to you. I'm going on in 67 in a few months. I'll be 67. Oh, my so, gosh. Are you vegan like, or something? Like, what's your diet? Uh, you look incredible for your age. I, I, I do eat relatively well, I think. I'm uh, I'm very conscious about what I feed my body. I don't live to eat. I eat to live. I love so that. I'm very conscious about that. I did study nutrition and biochemistry and lectured in that area back in the 70s, or late, mid to late 70s. Mm-hmm. So I have background in biochemistry and in that area, nutrition. But I, I just live it. I'm not interested. I don't do as much presentations on that today, but I do live... I think relatively decent. Oh, sorry. You, yeah, what you were saying before. But are you yeah. vegan? Would you say like predominantly your diet? I know we're not going too much into this. I'm actually quite curious because I like this really conversational. Well, um, I'm, I'm not exactly a vegan. I have been okay. years ago. Yeah. I, I eat fish and I eat fowl and I eat vegetables and salads and fruit and multigrain breads and cereals. I probably had about seven ounces of beef in the last 50 years. Wow. I have not, not been a, a beef eater. Okay. Not because it's bad. It's just, I, I seem to do really well with fish and fowl. And uh, so I'm not a big meat eater, but I, I love what I do. I think that that's when you're doing something you can't wait to do every morning. And I pretty well prioritize my life where I've delegated everything. I don't do anything that I'm not inspired by. I don't waste my time on that. Maybe that's a thing we, we could talk about, actually. No, I, I'd, I'd love to if you want to jump into that. Yeah, because every human being has a set of priorities, a set of values, things that are most to least important in life that they live their life by. They may be conscious or unconscious of them, but they're they're – their decisions in life are based on what they believe will give them the greatest advantage or disadvantage to whatever they value most. And their perceptions, decisions, and actions are filtered and affected by that. And knowing what it really is that's really, 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 truly important to you and not being confused by conforming to outside influences, but being really true intrinsically to what's really important to you, what's really priority, what's really most meaningful to you. And structuring and prioritizing your life in such a way that you delegate the rest away and get onto the thing that is truly most meaningful to the highest priority, highest priority of the priorities of the priorities. And do it in such a way that you can be remunerated for it in a sustainable, fair exchange manner where you can't wait to get up and go and be of service to people and people can't wait to get your service. You'll be rewarded and fulfilled in ways that are hard to describe that most people don't give themselves permission to do. 
And if they delegate wisely anything else to people who would really love to do what they want to delegate so they can be fulfilled, you don't have to micromanage. You don't have to uh, push people uphill. You're free to do what you love, giving people freedom to do what they love. And you're inspired in your life. And I feel that I've done that in my life. I, I have not cooked since I was 24 years old. I delegate that. I've not driven a car in over 30 years. I've delegated that. Anything that is not inspiring to me, I hire specialists to do. And I go do what I love doing, which is researching and teaching. And I've been blessed to be paid beautifully for that. And I do it in a way that's in fair exchange. So people consistently want to keep me in business. And um, I take a portion of that and I set it aside and I buy assets with it. So I'm able to go and have my money working for me. So I'm not having to work for it. And that gives me the freedom to do what I love, not because I have to, but because I love to. And it's not really that, it's not rocket science. It really can be done really simple. I've trained thousands and thousands of people on how to do that. And they can liberate themselves from, I guess you could say, the weighed down frustration of living by duty instead of design. But if you don't fill your day with high priority actions that inspire you, it's going to fill up with low priority distractions that won't. And it's not because of anything on the outside doing things to you. It's what you're not doing for yourself. You know, if, you, if you're not empowering your life, other people will overpower you and they'll project their values onto you as opportunist uh, to distract you, to try to get you to do things that aren't really priority. Do you have to be able to say, no, thank you. I know what my priorities are. I stick to them, but um, I'll do what I can to help you in where I am in my strength and uh, allow yourself to be yourself. You won't love your life and won't love yourself if you're not being yourself. It's that simple. So you got to give yourself permission to be who you are and not try to subordinate to the outside authorities that you may think have a better deal than you do. Conforming um, and living in sort of a, a shadows of other people instead of on the shoulders of giants is not probably the most fulfilling thing to do. It's, it's so interesting. Um, like going back to what you said, I mean, I, I agree with, most of everything that you're saying um, and obviously you have, you know, 10x experience on what I have. Um, when you say you put aside a percentage of your funds into assets, what would you say that percentage would be and what is it you invest into? Because people invest into property, some people invest into startups, entrepreneurs. What is it that you invest into? Is it based on your alignment and your passion, your purpose or is it actually just based on what is going to give you an ROI? That's a great question. And it's an important question. Um, when I first started investing, which is now almost 39 years ago, um, up until that point, I seemed to work, save a bit of money, spend it on something, start over work, save a little bit of money, buy this. I was um, not investing in assets. An asset is something that puts money in your pocket. Mm-hmm. And I realized that along the way that I was wise to buy and buy companies and shares of companies that served ever greater numbers of people, not gambling, not speculating, but finding companies that truly serve people on a larger scale that are going to be things that people are going to be consistently using. For instance, 
if uh, you have a, to a toothpaste, you probably use the same toothpaste year after year. If you have a, if you eat cream cheese, you probably get Philadelphia cream cheese or peanut butter. You eat the same peanut butter. Things that serve ever greater numbers of people that are replaceable, the things that we constantly do, repeatable uh, purchases that are essentials for people. When you buy into those companies, you're serving ever greater numbers of people as population grow and you have quite a stable company. And it's not a new and fangled thing where it has a tremendous amount of cost of startup and research. It just is something that serves. So I've been more focused on, because I believe that, that fulfillment in life is also through service. Mm -hmm. You deserve more when you serve more. And so even if I'm investing, I want to invest in something that serves. Now that could be property. You could be buying uh, real estate and developing it and building places where people can live or rent possibly or commercial properties, or you could be buying REITs and investing in a collective system of real estate. But anything that serves people, uh, I like companies particularly, some of those companies are involved in real estate development, but I like buying companies and owning shares in companies and um, that I feel are integral, that serve people, that are sustainable, mm -hmm. that have a quality track record, that have quality management. And so I just keep doing that. And I've been blessed by that. My money makes me way more money than I do even working because of that. Mm. So I'm free to do what I love doing. But, but you know, people say, well, because you're there, you can delegate. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, no, no, no. It's because I delegated, I became financially independent. I learned to delegate. Yes. Oh, can, can, I, can I share something that, something that may be really helpful? Yeah. I'm assuming some of the people are entrepreneurs. Most of them are entrepreneurs. Most of them business owners and entrepreneurs, yes. I was 27 years old. I had just opened up a practice months earlier. And I, I wouldn't say I was highly profitable, but I didn't have a negative thing. I had a, 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 a positive cash flow the very first month I started. I was blessed. But at age 27, not quite 28, I realized I was overwhelmed with all the stuff I was doing. I was doing this and that and that. I was just scattered. And so I went to a Walden's bookstore, which was a chain bookstore at the time. And I went and bought a book called The Time Trap by Alec McKenzie. And as I read that, I thought, oh, this is me. I'm majoring in minors and minoring in majors and doing a whole lot of stuff that's not the most important stuff. And I needed help. And so what I did is I made a list. I got a big piece of paper out. And I put five lines on the piece of paper and I made this actually more than one page and I made a list of everything that I do in a day from the time I get up to the time I go to bed. What do I do in a day? And I don't mean broad generalities, uh, you know, business or marketing or sales. What actions am I doing with my hands and body on a daily basis? And I wrote down everything. And then I looked at over a three month period different days I do different things. I added all the things I might do during a three month period onto that because some days are different. Mm -hmm. And I made this exhaustive list of what I did in a day to take a look at how I was spending my time and be honest with myself. When I got that list, intuitively I was being prompted going, whoa, I'm doing a lot of stuff that's not really the most important. I could see it right, right away. Next to that list in column two, I, I did the best as I, as I could to extrapolate and identify 
how much is each of these things producing economically? What is that producing per hour? And some things I went zero. And some things I went $1,500, $600, $200. And I wrote down how much is it produced per hour? So I could look at what is the most productive thing I'm doing. I also decided to charge for some of the things I was doing that I wasn't charged for at that moment, just by that exercise, which was actually liberating because I thought I'm not valuing that. I'm not valuing me. And I wrote that down. Mm. And when I wrote that down, I looked at that and I was, whoa, I've gone to 10 years of college to be a specialist and doing my specialty is not the most productive thing for me to do. That was a real, real jolt. Me going out and doing a presentation and educating people on things that could help their life actually produced more to the business than me actually being in the cubicle, being a technician, doing the work I was doing as a professional, which was shocking to me because I thought, wow, all these years, but that's not the most productive thing I could be doing. It was very enlightening to me. But when I made that list down, I realized I prioritized it. What produced the most, what produced the least when I got through. And I could feel in my daily work when I was doing things that were devaluing me. And I could feel when I was doing things that most, I could feel my own self-worth change. Because anytime you're doing higher value things, your self-worth goes. Every time you do lower values, your self-worth goes down. It's just the way it is. When I got through that, that was eye-opening and reflective also. But then I went to the third column. And I wrote down, how much meaning does each of these things have? It's not about how much it makes, but how much meaning does it have? How, how fulfilling is it for me to do that? And I made a list of all, I put a one to 10 scale, and I made a list of everything down there, a 10, nine, a six, a two, a one, a three. And then I reprioritized that list according to the thing that was most inspiring for me and fulfilling for me to do down to the thing that was frigging, ugh, I hate doing that. And I basically made a list of those. And I was really blessed to have many of the things I was inspired by also be the things that produced the most. So then I prioritized the two together and I made a list of what was most meaningful and productive and put that list together. In the next column, I wrote down, if I was to delegate this and have somebody else do this, how much would it cost me? Not in salary, but everything, space utilization, equipment, depreciation schedules, salaries, insurance, parking, training, every single cost down to the fifth degree, I wrote out what those costs I anticipated would be for me to have somebody do it to the same standard or more than me, at least my standard or more. Not just do it, but do it to my standard or more and put the dollar value on it. And then after I got that list done, I looked at what was the spreads between what was it could produce to do that work versus what it would cost. And I then prioritized it according to spreads. Then on the next column, I, um, and immediately I was immediately thinking, oh, I know what I'm delegating. And then the next column I wrote down, how much time am I spending on each of these? The actual amount of time I'm actually doing that in a day. And I took, you know, sometimes I would do it not for a day, but I would do it for two hours once a week. So I just divided it up per day, took that by five and divided it up. And then I looked at the time. And then the final column, sixth column, is my final prioritization, factoring all the variables, meaning, productivity, cost, time. I then reprioritized it. And then divided that prioritization, that entire list into 10 layers. 
And then I, com- I grouped that 10 layers into job descriptions. And I started at the bottom, because you always delegate the least important down first, down to all the way to the last thing that duplicates you. So you can either franchise or duplicate yourself. And then I hired somebody and put somebody in place to do the first layer. And that took three people of hiring, firing, hiring, firing, until I got that person. Mm-hmm. I put that person in place. Then I did the next layer, put that person in place. That took two. Next layer took one. Next one took two. And over the next 18 months from the day I read that book, I freed up everything off my plate. And every time I did, my income went up. And at the end of it, my income was tenfold with about a 20% to 25% cost. So my profit margins went skyrocketing because I liberated myself from things that were not inspiring, low in priority, not fulfilling, that I could delegate. And I ended up increasing the economy because now I had five doctors and 12 staff members. So I put in with ancillary people, about 18 people in my operation. And I helped the economy because they're now getting an income. They're now paying taxes. They're now able to raise kids and buy homes and do things. And I'm able to do more. And I started investing in companies that helped grow. And as I was doing that, I increased my savings and kept increasing my savings every quarter. I made a commitment that I would increase my savings at least 10% every quarter. Mm-hmm. until that became quite a substantial amount every quarter that I was able to invest into um, quality companies. And so now I'm helping the economy with quality companies. I'm helping my company grow. I'm helping job opportunities. I'm helping the, the overall society by doing that. And that allowed me to give a higher quality service. So I'm able to keep my cost more meaningful to the customer and be more competitive in that and have a higher quality job opportunity because I kept and showed the same exercise to all the employees. So if they were not inspired by it, they would delegate Mm -hmm. and we would hire people accordingly. So it wasn't Mm -hmm. just me doing it. I started to train them on doing the same thing. And that way people were inspired to want to go to work. When you can't wait to go to work, people can't wait to get your service and the business grows. But anyway, that, that exercise was a goldmine. So whoever's maybe listening Mm-hmm. By the way, if you're a, a mother at home and have a business and maybe mothering, you want to not trap yourself. You want to delegate things that are inspiring. If you have the capacity to earn money serving people more than the cost of delegating some of the duties, you don't want to be trapped in your life doing something that's not inspiring. It's your life. You want to make sure you prioritize your life in such a way that you're free to do what is inspiring to you in life. You can live an inspiring life, extraordinary life, if you prioritize. Absolutely. It's it's so true about delegating. And, you know, what you were saying, it's so easy for people to say, well, you can do that because you can afford to grow a team or have a team. And I necessarily can't because I don't have an income coming in to be able to delegate my tasks. Um, but it's really interesting on in how you explain that really well. Um, but obviously finding the right people to do that particular task is obviously the hardest part of delegating. That's interesting. There are a number of things that I found along the way that helped me in that. Being really clear and concise on the job duties 
so you know what you're doing. Because if you're hesitant and vague and uncertain about what you want to delegate, uh, you make it unclear into the kind of the universe about what you're asking for. And so being clear on that is a, a first step. So you know what you want. Now, you can always put a few more variables in there so they don't get in the assumption that, well, this is only a thing I'm going to do. You do what is needed because it's evolving. The business is always evolving. But once you do, then when you are about to hire somebody, you want to know what they spontaneously do in their life that's highest on their values. I have a value determination process. It's on my website at drdmartini.com. It's free. It's complimentary. It'll take you about 30 minutes of your time to go through. It's a real, it's a really important thing to do in life to find out what your life demonstrates important, not what you think it is. I've been studying values for almost 44 years and I ask people about their values and I've been doing it for all those years. And 99% of the people don't know what's important to them. They really think they know, but they don't. I was standing in South Africa uh, doing a program with Richard Branson for about 5,000 people. And I was the starting speaker. And I had a large audience. And I said, I said, how many of you want to be financially independent here? All the hands went up. The feet went up. You know, everybody was like, yeah. And I said, great. Now, how many of you are financially independent? All the hands went down. And I said, the financial independence is your passive income is exceeding your active income. And you don't have to work. You're working because you love to. And uh, all the hands went down. But if, a few, a few hands were still up, but not many. And I said, isn't it interesting that you just said that you want to be financially independent, but less than 1% make it? So how come 99% of the people say they want it, but they don't live it? And I'll explain why. That the hierarchy of your values dictates your financial destiny. And what you think you want is not what matters, it's how you manage what you the money that you get and what you really show is important. Majority of people, when they think of financial independence, they think of the lifestyles of the rich and famous, and they think of consumables that depreciate in value and buying a bunch of consumables that surround themselves and fill up houses and with stuff instead of actually buying assets. And so few people really are wanting to take the time and be patient long-term to buy assets and let them work for them. Mm. The compound interest, the eighth wonder of the world, as Einstein said, most people don't have the patience for it. They want a quick fix. They want something now. They want stuff. They want to buy things. They think financial independence is having the best shoes, the best clothes, the best house, the best this, which a lot of celebrities are demonstrating their own bankruptcies in the process. So financial independence is actually having a value on a long-term accumulation of finance. So your lifestyle is able to, over time, go up instead of go down because of immediate gratification. Immediate gratification costs you long-term vision pays. Mm. So most people don't know what they really value. They think they do. So the value determination on the website, I promise you is worth the time spent. And I would do it again and again until you're really honest with yourself. Because once you know what's really important, you can start structuring your life and have fulfillment. And if where can they know, find that? The website, sorry, it was just drdmartini.com. Okay. Determine, determine your values. You'll see it on there. When determine you your on. values. Okay, cool. Okay. And they could just download it. And before you ever hire anybody, no, you can just do it right on the thing. It does it right there for oh, you. Oh, cool. Perfect. You can store it there. It's private. No one will ever see it except you. Perfect. Okay. Now, if you hire somebody, 
don't ever hire anybody without knowing what that is, what's mm -hmm. valuable to them. Nobody goes to work for the sake of a company. They go to work to fulfill what their values are, their highest values. Tell me what that is and I'll tell you what they're committed to. If they can see how their job duties are gonna help them fulfill that, they'll be engaged, you don't have to micromanage them. They'll be a spontaneously inspired person to do the work. But if they're not able to see how those job duties can help them fulfill what they value, you're gonna end up pushing them uphill and you're gonna be distracted from your own fulfillment. And so you don't wanna hire that. Every symptom in a business is a feedback to the manager and leader to be authentic. Mm. And if you hire people that can't be authentic in the job duties, that's a lesson to the manager not to hire that individual. And so you don't wanna ever hire anybody without knowing what is really what they're committed to because that's what they're committed to. <laughs> and mm. if, they, if they see how the job duty is gonna help them get it, they can't wait to go to work. But if not, they're gonna do what they can to avoid being at work. They're gonna take breaks, they're gonna get off things, they're gonna be distracted. And you're going to have to push them and motivate them. If you have to motivate people to work, that's not the person. Motivation is a symptom, never a solution for, for humanity and for the business or the economy. Motivation is a symptom. It's because, we, see, when we're doing something we love to do, our blood glucose and oxygen goes into the forebrain to the executive center. We're creative. We're resilient. We're, a, we're, we're a more objective and we're engaged. But if it's not, if we're not, inspired by it, it's low on our values. We go into our amygdala and our amygdala wants immediate gratification. The amygdala wants pleasure without pain, support without challenge, ease without difficulty, prey without predator. And that is the animal behavior that needs governing and motivating and, and controlling. And so you'll end up a tyrant if you hire people that are inspired, trying to manage them. And that's a feedback and symptom to you to let you know that you're not living by your priorities, and you're not hiring people so they can live by their priorities. Absolutely. And it's a major, major feedback on mastery of business. Well, micromanagement, I believe, is a failure to any business, in my opinion. I just think it it will continue to uh, destroy the culture and the the talent internally. It, it always well, has based on experience, yeah. It's a symptom of two individuals, the leader if they have time to micromanage, they're not on their priorities. Right. And the people that are doing it, if they need micromanage, they're not doing what they love and they're not on their priorities. Right. So these are all symptoms of entropy. And, and then and it's beautiful that the symptoms emerge because the symptoms are feedback to an astute manager on how to run the business. It's feedback. Every symptom in a business is feedback attempting to guide the manager on how to make sure that they and the people are inspired and able to do what they love doing. It makes a difference. Perfect. When you got people that love what they're doing, they're, they're free. You don't control them. You just, you know, Warren Buffett, when he manages, he's got a lot of companies that he's overseeing mm -hmm. and he stays out of it. Why? Because he's got people that are independently wealthy. They don't have to work that love doing that part. And they are committed to that outcome. And that's, that's the way to put, if you surround yourself with people that, so when I invest in companies, I'm looking for that in a company because mm -hmm. when they do, you don't have to concern yourself so much about it. You just invest and they will use that money wisely and you'll make a return out of it. That's, that's, and if you're not immediate gratifying, which is makes people gamble and look for the quickest, the newest fangling thing, 
and look for something that's got a track record that serves people, you'll be rewarded in life. It doesn't take speculations and gambles to get wealthy in life. No, I agree. I, I, th- there's a few questions I'd love to ask you because I did a, a little bit of like a story on my Instagram and LinkedIn and I said I was doing this today. Is there any questions that anybody had that, you know, they wanted me to ask you? And there was a few here that were really important. Um, based on your upbringing, uh, you know, as a child, I think a lot of things start, you know, the, the beliefs or your mindset start as a child on your upbringing. And I, and I, you know, suffer still from things that I'm still working on internally. Um, you had similar beliefs to me as a child with the mindset. You weren't really sure of where you were going. People didn't really think that you would go too far. You thought you were going to be a uni dropout or a school dropout. My question to you and what other people are asking is what was the pivotal, a pivotal moment for you when you were a child to change your mindset to become the Dr. Martini you are today or at that time? What was that moment for you? Well, I'm a firm believer that anything you can't say thank you for is baggage. Anything you can say thank you for is fuel. So there's nothing I look back in my life and think there's an error there. Everything was needed for, for me to be who I am. Mm-hmm. And there were many pivotal points. I was, uh, when I was born, I had a leg that was turned inward, and I also had um, an arm that was turned in. And so when I was about a year and a half old, I had to wear a brace on my arm and leg wow. and to straighten it out. I also had a speech impediment, and about a year and a half, I remember I was having to put buttons and strings in my mouth and do all these exercises. And so when I was four, I got out of the braces. <clears throat> when I turned six uh, in first grade, no matter what I did, I couldn't read. I couldn't pronounce words properly. I couldn't get meaning out of them. And I went from the normal reading to the remedial reading to having to wear a dunce cap. That's what they did in those days, 1950s, 60. And um, so I was learned challenged as a child. And my first grade teacher had my parents come to the school and said, I'm afraid your son is probably never going to be able to read or write very effectively because I wrote backwards, not be able to um, communicate effectively, probably won't go very far and amount to anything. But when I got out of the braces, all I wanted to do is run. So they said he likes to run. So I would put him in some sort of sport. Well, I did do well in baseball up until I was 12, 13. When my parents moved from Houston, Texas to Richmond, Texas, Baseball wasn't the same. I lived in a small, low economic area, a lot of racial issues. Baseball players wouldn't even show up. We wouldn't even have a team. We had to cancel. Baseball no longer was fun. I took up surfing. I was also able to surf since I was nine. Texas wasn't the surf capital, and uh, but I picked up surfing. And I ended up having difficulties in school and I dropped out of school. I left home and I was 13 and I was a street kid. So I lived on the streets. I lived in a bowling alley. I lived in a park. I lived in uh, cars that were available. People didn't lock their cars in those days. Wow. And I was a street kid. At 14, I hitchhiked to California to go surfing because I was wanting to go surfing. I was living at the beach sometime when I was younger. 
14, I went down to Mexico, hitchhiked and illegally got into the country and went down to Mexico and surfed there. At 15, I, I went to Hawaii. I panhandled up money in Huntington Beach, California to get to Hawaii. I lived under a bridge at Sunset Beach at Kamehameha Highway, then a park bench at Iakai Beach Park and a park bathroom, and then an abandoned car, and then a tent. So I kept social climbing. And then I nearly died at 17. Uh, I had strychnine poisoning, cyanide poisoning. And I was surfing. I was a big wave rider. I was pretty good at surfing. And then as a result of the recovery of that, a lady found me in my tent. And if it wasn't for her, I probably wouldn't be here. And the recovery of that, um, I ended up going to a little yoga class one night to hear somebody speak. I never went to classes, but something intuitively told me to go to that class. And there a gentleman named Paul Bragg was lecturing. And this man in one hour, that one night, um, got to me in a way that nobody had ever gotten to me. And he inspired me to believe that maybe I could overcome my learning problems and become intelligent. I never thought I was going to be intelligent. I was surf intelligent, street savvy, but not academic intelligent. I never read a book until I was 18 from cover to cover. What did he exactly say? That stuff. He, he said, we have a body, we have a mind and we have a soul. And the body must be directed by the mind and the mind must be inspired by the soul to maximize who we are as a human being. That was the term that he had. He said that we have to take command of our thoughts, our vision, our internal dialogue, our feelings, and our actions, and not let the world determine that, but us determine it. And that we have to set goals for ourselves, our family, our community, our city, our state, our nation, our world, and beyond for 120 years. So he made us do that. And that night I thought, hmm, with this new insight, what I was learning from this man, I thought maybe I could figure out a way of overcoming my learning problems and someday become intelligent. And I had to dream that night, a vision that night of speaking and teaching and, and going doing that around the world. I didn't know that was coming. I didn't expect that. Mm. That paint, I, I have that painted today. It sits in my office, a big painting of me standing in front of millions of people speaking. That was the vision I saw that night. And I uh, left there. I had the opportunity to be with him for three weeks every single morning, learn from this man. And then I end up hitchhiking, well, flying back to Los Angeles, hitchhiking back to Texas, and taking a GED, which is high school equivalency, and guessing and passing and trying to go to school. But when I started to go back to school, I failed and almost gave up. And I was crying in the living room at my parents' house. And my mom came to me and said, what happened? So what's wrong? I said, mom, I blew the test. I got a 27 and I need a 72 to pass. I guess I don't have what it takes. I guess I don't have, I, I guess I'll never read, write or communicate. Never amount of thing, never go very far in life. And she said something only a mother could say at that moment. She said, son, whether you become a great teacher and travel the world like you dream. Whether you go back and ride big waves and giant waves in Hawaii like you've done. 
a return to the streets and panhandle is a bum. I just want to let you know your father and I are going to love you no matter what you do, boy. In that moment, my hand went into a fist. I looked up and I said to myself, I'm going to master this thing called reading and studying and learning. I'm going to master this thing called teaching and philosophy. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance. I'm going to do pay whatever price to get my surface love across this planet. I'm not going to let any human being on this planet stop me, not even myself. And I had this divine providence, human sovereignty match at that moment. And I got up and I hugged my mom. I went into my room. I got a dictionary out, which I still have that same dictionary. And I um, started at the very beginning of it. And I started memorizing 30 words a day and adding to my vocabulary and properly spelling it, writing it out in a sentence, getting the meaning. And my mom would test me on 30 words a day, every single day until my vocabulary was strong enough to pass and to read. And then I started to read and read and read and read and excel. And I really rose to the top of the class very quickly because I was more determined to learn than anybody in that school. And I never stopped. That's why I ended up reading 30,000 plus books now. I never stopped learning. And I love learning and standing on the shoulders of giants and sharing what I learned with other people. I can't think of anything else I'd rather do. Oh my gosh, what a story. I was like, <laughs> I felt like I almost was going to cry as you were telling me. That's incredible. Wow. So would you say, I guess, the moment was the yoga studio that you went to. And then from there, the execution was your mother, essentially. She was your support system. She was the, the person. My, to my, mother, my mother, unquestionably, with the help of that. Now, she, what's interesting, my mother didn't have a big education. I think she had high school. Mm -hmm. But my mother was a crossword puzzle freak. She lived with crossword puzzles every day. Mm -hmm. And boy, did she know a lot of words. You know, if you do crosswords and just all day long crosswords, that's it. She, her vocabulary was exceptional. So I had the perfect mother to assist me in learning words because she loved learning words. Right. So when I did that, we just, we linked up. Now, my dad was magnificent. He was a, an engineer. He owned a plumbing business. Um, he was a lover of philosophy. So I really am blessed. I can't complain. I, I, I didn't leave home because of problems at home. I mm. left home because my dad tried to make me as independent as possible at the youngest age because he knew I wasn't able to read properly. He thought, I got to make him street smart. So I'm grateful for my journey. I don't see anything. None of those things that I went through living on the streets are anything that I would not be grateful for today. There's nothing I need to hide. I could say anything about anything I've done. I mean, I've, I've had some wild experiences over those years. There's, but there's nothing to hide, something to be grateful for. Mm. And I'm a firm believer that anything you can't say thank you for, as I said, is baggage. So you want to be grateful for your life. And you'll be grateful for your life if you're living by priority. Because every day, you're getting to do what you love and you're grateful for life. The executive center in the brain, the medial prefrontal cortex, is the gratitude center. So the second you live by priority, you're going to be more grateful for your life. 
And my mom taught me when I was four, mm. count your blessings every night because of those that are grateful for what they have, they get more to be grateful for. One of my books that I wrote before my mother died was count your blessings. Yes. And, and going to that, um, that's kind of my next question was you mentioned people that are chasing happiness are the people that are the most saddest people. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'd like to pick your brain around that because when I heard that, I was like, I was trying to scratch my head. I'm like, wait, does this make sense? And I'm like, yes, I get it now. And then the thought process of that was I have a life coach that I speak to often uh, that I vent to a lot. And she mentioned something to me that kind of stuck with me over, over the years. And she said, Belinda, when you meet somebody, whether it's your partner or your business partner, any relationship, everybody has an individual movie. And whatever that movie is, if your movie doesn't match their movie, it will never work. And it was really aligned to the happiness because for me in, in partnerships, in, you know, personal partnerships, I've always had issues and business partnerships also some, not most, but some. Um, and it was because of what she told me. She told me that if my movie wasn't matching their movie, it would never work. But then when you talk about chasing happiness, because in some way I, I am wanting to be happy, although I'm not chasing it, does that mean I'm really sad internally? And what do you mean by that? I really want to know this because most people in the world are chasing happiness. That's all they talk about. As long as you're happy, Belinda, the world is great, right? <laughs> now, in order to elaborate on this, I'm going to have to go into almost a, uh, a stoic insight. When you're living by your highest value and you're prioritizing your life, your blood glucose noxin goes into the forebrain. That's the executive center. Uh-huh. Now this area uh, has connections to the occipital cortex, the V5, V6, visual centers five and six, which are the associated areas of the, of the brain, which allows you to see what you want. Those with a vision flourish, those without a vision perish. And allows you to have data in your vision to strategize how to navigate through any obstacle. Mm -hmm. It also is the strategic area of the brain. So you're able to strategically mitigate risks that you anticipate that are little angst that are popping up in your head in the pursuit of what you want. It also activates the associative executive motor area which makes you spontaneously want to act on what you've got in your mind on how to do it. And it also sends fibers down to the amygdala to calm the amygdala down from its impulsive and instinctual fantasies and fears. So you're stable. So anytime we can go into that executive center, we're more objective. And what's interesting, and, and, and I think about it this way, imagine a young boy who loves doing video games. You don't have to ever remind him to do his video games. You don't have to motivate him. He loves his video games. So he spontaneously does them. And the moment he does them and he conquers a game, he immediately wants to find a way of getting the next more advanced game that challenges him. So anytime you're doing something that's really inspiring to you, you don't try to avoid challenges. 
you search for challenges that inspire you, which is known to initiate the greatest creativity, genius, innovation, and original thinking. So genius and original thinking and innovation to give you the competitive edge in the world emerges when you're pursuing challenges that inspire you. So anytime you're living by priority, that all emerges and you can't wait to do the work. Now, anytime you're in a job that you feel is coming from an external thing that's not highest on your value, where you're inspired, engaged, where you want to do creative things and innovate and be objective, you go into the amygdala and it's a response that's kind of a you know, defense response. And it is de designed with the nucleus accumens to look for pleasure and the pallidum to avoid pain, to seek something to eat and avoid being eaten. Mm -hmm. And so it's a survival desire center, they call it. And this desire center wants a pleasure without a pain and wants to avoid a pain without a pleasure. And so it, what it does is it subjectively biases its reality and distorts things and creates fantasies about people. So let's say you're in a relationship and this person is perceived, you're consciously perceiving the upsides, but you're unconscious of the downsides. And now you're infatuated, you're blind to the downsides, and you're subject, that's a subjective bias, a bias that's not balanced. Now, if you actually know them, you'll find out they've got both sides, things you'll like and dislike. But right now you're in an infatuated because you think it's prey and you want to consume them and eat them. And when the process of doing that, you'll minimize yourself for them and sacrifice your highest value and your real mission to be with them for fear of loss of the food, the prey, the fear of loss of that which you seek. And when you do, you have now a fantasy of who they are. That's not who they are. It's the fantasy that you've subjectively biased in your amygdala and survival that you fear the loss of. That's why you're jealous. That's why you're angst. If all of a sudden they were seeing somebody else or not there for you or not calling you back and all the symptoms of a subjective bias. But you're now pursuing this pursuit of this thing called happiness, pleasure without pain. It's a hedonistic happiness. And with that comes the fear of its opposite automatically. And so the brain, when you're in the amygdala, is trying to avoid that which is the opposite and seek that fantasy. And the more you search it, the more you have fear of the opposite. And the more you're living in angst. And the more you fear the loss of that which you seek and the fear of gain of that which you're trying to avoid. Mm -hmm. That's why if you go back to priority and live by what's really priority and go into objectivity, where you've seen both sides of things and you mitigate the risks, you transform fantasies into objectives. A goal can range from a fantasy where there's more positives and negatives to an objective where there's positive and negatives and you're prepared for both of them. You can't make it in NASA or on SpaceX to go to Mars without anticipating every possible challenge you could do and have a foresight to think and mitigate those risks in advance. That's a true goal. Mm. A true objective is anticipating that. So there's no fear because you're prepared. But if you have a fantasy, let's go to Mars you're gonna have all kinds of anxieties and fears coming up automatically because those are all the things you didn't think out and didn't anticipate and didn't mitigate. Mm. So an objective is balanced, both sides, you're prepared for it. If you love somebody, you're gonna love both sides. If you're in fact with somebody, you're gonna only see one side and have a fantasy and then when they don't match the fantasy, you're gonna be broken, heartbroken. 
you never have a broken heart over the loss of some you love. You only have a broken heart over the loss of some of you infatuate with the fantasy you created. Wow. So, so that pursuit of that one-sidedness, a hedonistic happiness, creates the sadness. That's why I wrote a little booklet called, I Gave Up Happiness and Made Me Too Sad. Now, there's a thing that Aristotle called eudaimonia. And eudaimonia was that well-being, that whole being, the embracing of both sides. You want to be loved for who you are, Belinda, both sides. The nice, the mean, the kind, the cruel, the happy, the sad, the up, the down. You want to be loved for both sides. But you won't be loved for both sides if you're putting on a facade of one side and not allowing yourself to be both sides. If, you're, if you puff yourself up with pride, that's not you. If you beat yourself with shame, that's not you. If you infatuate with somebody, you'll minimize yourself. That's not you. If you resent somebody, you'll exaggerate yourself. That's not you. Anytime you're not you, nobody can love you for being you because you're not you. Mm. And so that's why being infatuated with somebody and then feeling minimized and fearing the loss of them is disempowering. And you'll turn around and eventually resent them to the same degree that you infatuated them, just a matter of when, to try to get your life back into equilibrium, to be authentic and actually pursue a true objective in life. That's why living by priority is so crucial for the mastery of life and the fulfillment of life and the mastery of a career. So the false happiness, which the Stoics warned against, and they said it's wise to premeditate on the evils, the downsides of anything to make sure you see both sides of things. Because if I came to you and I said to you, Belinda, you're always nice, you're never mean. You're always kind, you're never cruel. You're always up, you're never down. You're always peaceful, never wrathful. Always generous, never stingy. Your own BS meter inside you would go. You would immediately be thinking of the times when you've been mean and cranky and upset and wrathful and, and, and not stingy, stingy. And if I went to you and I said, you're always mean, you're never nice, you're always cruel, you're never kind, you're always stingy, you're never generous. And I went the other direction, your BS meter would go, no, 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 I have the other side too. But if I said, Belinda, sometimes you're nice, sometimes you're mean, sometimes you're kind, sometimes you're cruel, sometimes you're positive, sometimes you're negative, sometimes you're peaceful, sometimes you're wrathful, you would immediately go, that's true. You only have certainty when you have an objective, balanced view of yourself and on the goals and on the people you interact with. And so we lose our certainty and have uncertainties when we live in the amygdala and we try to get one-sided lives and try to avoid the other side. Life has both sides. Yeah, it, it's very true. And that's what I grasped mostly from what you were saying on a video I was watching of you and you, you mentioned that and it was, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. I need to go back through this again and watch this because there's so many golden nuggets I could possibly do and, you know, action straight away. But thanks for sharing that. Um, I wanted to go into, because I know we're cautious of time. It's, you know, gone over a little bit. There's a few questions. There's actually a lot of questions, but I'm going to go into the main ones that I guess kind of stuck out. So one of them, I'll finish with two. So one of them was you've traveled across the world globally in, in many countries and met so many extraordinary people from, you know, thousandaires to millionaires to billionaires. And I guess the question is, what is the difference between a billionaire and a millionaire? What are the things that you see millionaires do 
versus a billionaire. And the reason why I'm asking this is because I actually seen it on a podcast. Somebody asked a billionaire the question and then a millionaire. And there were so interesting answers. The billionaire was very minimal versus the millionaire was like a whole list of seven steps or 10 steps to, to strategize and maximize your company. So the reason why I'm asking this also is because a lot of our people are startups, um, entrepreneurs, or want to be an entrepreneur. So what's the difference between a billionaire and a millionaire? And if there's a difference, what are they both doing individually different? Well, that there's quite a variation on that, but I'll, I'll just quote something from the book of wealth by Hubert Hal Bancroft. Okay. Yeah. Which is a great text, a 10 volume text that I have, which is a rare collector's item. Billionaires have a feeling inside, deep inside, consciously or unconsciously, of that they feel destined to serve vast numbers of people. It's just innate. I just feel it's, 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 it's destined to serve ever greater numbers of people. And so they think of problems that most people are trying to avoid. How do we solve them? Money is a reflection of solving people's problems. If you can, you know, you, you see, I ask people by the millions, how many of you have ever used Microsoft Windows? Every hand in every country I've ever asked it to goes up. Every hand has somehow used Microsoft Windows. He's a billionaire because he created something that everybody can benefit by. And so there's a yearning inside to contribute and serve ever greater numbers of people. And not on a small scale, but on a large scale. There's also a yearning to be a, a steward of money where you're not flaunting, but you're and not living beyond your means. You're letting your money work for you. And a lot of them, you'd be surprised how many simple, I mean, the, the great philosophers always emphasize this, but some of the greatest, wealthiest people I've found do this. They do live nice lives, but it's a, insignificant compared to what they're earning. So they basically don't flaunt it and overdo it. There's many centimillionaires that are living beyond their means and they're going bankrupt. They're celebrities because they don't understand the financial world. So they are basically living wisely and making sure their money is growing. I mean, we'll use Bill Gates. I mean, uh, Warren Buffett as an example. He eats simple. He lives in a simple house. He's manages money. He loves managing money. He's been doing it since he was seven. And he's not flaunting it. And eventually the people that do usually go only through a stage until they become more mature and then they realize that's that's a foolish thing. Yeah. So that's one thing. But they, they have a yearn to do that. And they also feel that there's a, a greater cause of what money represents. So I'd like to share that because money is a, or transactional vehicle of sustainable fair exchange. If you try to get something for nothing or try to give something for nothing, it usually 
creates a feedback system to try to create a complete, sustainable, non-zero-sum game fair exchange. We've all been in business where we got a bit cocky and think we know better than the customer and project onto them and not meet the customer's needs. Mm -hmm. And it got us humbled. And most likely we've also been on the other extreme, really altruistic and worked our butt off and said, damn it, I deserve more than that and lifted ourselves back up again. But all of those symptoms are feedback mechanisms to get us to have sustainable fair exchange between ourselves, the employees, and the customers, where each of the individuals are fulfilling their values. And so the master of money is the one that is striving for sustainable fair exchange with all the parties participating. And they will reward themselves and get rewarded by a continued expansion of people wanting to do business with them and their product, service, and ideas. Because that will be reflected in meeting the needs of the people. If you have the product that meets the needs in a more effective and efficient way at a fair price, more business comes to you. If there's not a demand, somehow you're not meeting people's needs. So I'm a firm believer that the billionaire is just more effective and efficient at that. Or let's put it this way, the sustainable billionaire. Yeah. Some rise into power. You know, there's a lot of little Bitcoin billionaires that will be here and be gone tomorrow. But I'm talking about somebody that really sustainable wealth building. And as Buffett and Gates did in their book called Creative Capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, Very thing that's important there is to make sure you're thinking of the globe and thinking about as you're accumulating your wealth, what is your philanthropic objective? Because the greater your cause, the greater your wealth potential. Mm. And, and if you don't have a cause going up logarithmically to the devaluation of the dollar as you accumulate it, because as you have, if you have zero dollars, you add a dollar, it's worth 100%. $10, 10%, $100, 1%, $1,000, 0.1%, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, 000, So as the money goes up, the value of additional dollars go down. So if you don't have a cause going up to counterbalance the devaluation of what a dollar means to you, you'll plateau and buy clutter. So you have a responsibility, a philanthropic responsibility of contributing in ways that are deeply meaningful to you that don't rob people of dignity, accountability, responsibility, and productivity, but actually serve and help them become self-sustaining and inspired in their lives. If you do that, you get fulfillment, you give fulfillment, and it's deeply meaningful, and you're rewarded with even greater wealth. Wow. I I really like that answer. I think based on the scale out of billionaires, think of solutions within the masses, like at, at at a scale. Um, but you, you're right. Like there's so many people like Bitcoin people and cryptocurrency traders, all of a sudden they're millionaires and, and gone tomorrow bankrupt. But, you know, as Gary V says, there's so many people that are trying to live up to the Joneses or trying to be the Joneses, you know, and spending all this money on themselves, but not necessarily having any money in the bank. You know, it's, it's well, very. I don't I, have a lot of money in the bank. I have it in, in other investments. I, I pass it through the bank. I don't keep money in the bank, but I pass it through the bank. Correct. They don't have money working for them. Mm. But I have, I have more than enough money to take care of, you know, my objectives. 
But I believe that you, if you value money long-term and understand that it's a, as a measurement of the sustainable fair exchange, and it's a measurement to, to have sustainable fair exchange, you have to have equanimity. And that's the spiritual path. That's the inspired path. That's the authentic path. You're not authentic if you're puffing yourself up or deflating yourself. Altruistic, narcissistic, you're not being yourself. So it's, it's the finances are a confirmation feedback to you of your authenticity. Yes. Wow. I'm going to use that as a quote <laughs> on my LinkedIn probably next week, if you allow me. But I just wanted to end it off lastly, you know, um, thank you for being on the show. And if we can ask one more question, I know it's like 10, 13 a.m. here and I know we're already over time. If you don't mind, I just wanted to ask um, if there was one thing that you've learned out of the 38, was it 38,000 books right now? Did you say? Just 30,000, almost 600 now. Okay. 30,000 30, books. So out of the 30,000 books that you have read, um, what is the one thing or few things you can mention that you've learned from those books? So even just in life itself, not necessarily the books you can share, um, that you feel that could help a startup, an entrepreneur, um, or a business owner, or even a small to medium business throughout their career, or even just to start, what is the one thing that you could give them? to leave off the, the podcast. The today. magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies you'll impose on yourself. So don't compare yourself to others. Compare your daily actions to your own highest values. Don't put people on pedestals or pits. Put them in your heart. Because when you see people who they are and you're able to be who you are, you're going to be the most magnificent and productive and inspired individual you can be. So don't Compare yourself to other people. If you put them on a pedestal, you'll minimize yourself. If you put them in the pit, you'll exaggerate yourself and you'll never be yourself. But being yourself is a thing that people want to do business with. The authentic you. That's called integrity. Yes, I like that. And with the 30,000 books that you've read, what is the one book that you would give to the listeners to listen to other than your own books? <laughs> I tell people that. Two great books, which are really one book, by Mortimer Adler, called Syntopicon Volumes 1 and 2, by Mortimer Adler. Can you spell Adler. that? S-Y-N-T-O-P-I-C-O-N, Syntopicon. Cool, thank you. And it's a synthesis, and it's a synthesis of the greatest ideas by the greatest minds over the last 2,700 years. Okay. Britannica, the Britannica, the Encyclopedia Britannica was the producer of this. It's part of the Great Ideas series. And I think the education of that is one of the greatest educations. I ask all of my students around the world to read those. Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing and Thank you for all the golden nuggets you shared on the show. I really appreciate your time and being here and it's really nice to meet you. Is there anything that we can, uh, I guess, jump on? You've got a website, which is drdmartini.com. Um, you've got Instagram that you can shout out, LinkedIn. Where else can people find you? You can go on and just go on the website and I have weekly podcasts and Martini show and 
webinars and just go in there and look at the events. You can, it's so filled with education. There are thousands of radio, television, podcasts, webinars, all kinds of things yes. on there. You could spend the rest of your life on there and not keep up because I produce them more than you could probably watch. And just, just out of curiosity, um, do you produce a ton of content on a daily basis? Like if so, how many pieces do you push out? Just I have, a number. I have, I have written articles for 1,500 newspapers and magazines around the world. I'm writing every day. Wow. I usually podcast most every day or I'm teaching every day. Right. And sometimes I'll do five to eight podcasts in a day, sometimes just one a day. Wow. But um, I, I pretty well spend my life researching, writing, and teaching in whatever capacity possible. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. And um, your events, you've got events coming up, I think I've got here. I'm not really sure if you're coming to Australia anytime soon due to COVID. On, on Zoom, I'm doing programs. I just finished yes, attending you're doing, program. Yeah, and when's your, when's your next program? Well, I do them every day almost. So okay. if you just go on, you can go on and <clears throat> see where I am and what I'm doing on the events. It's just called events on my website. Okay, so you just need to go to the website and check out events and your next event. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Demartini. Linda, thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to Startups and Unicorns with Belinda Agnew. If you haven't already, please subscribe if you enjoyed this episode. Ployd is the only flat rate recruitment product helping companies scale talent without breaking the bank. For more tips and value, follow us on our socials via @nmsofficial and at ployd.co on Instagram. Connect with us on LinkedIn at NMSEmployed or get in touch directly with Belinda by following her at Belinda Agnew Official.